Welcome to the home for Bible geeks everywhere. This This is the Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. What's up, Bible geeks, and welcome to another episode of The Edge. I'm your host, Scott Logan, and this week we're talking a little bit about social media and smartphones and whether or not they're affecting our Christianity. Also, at the end of last season, when we finished up Ephesians, I told you that our next book to study was the book of James. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about worship because that's been a subject I've been focusing on in my own life. And this is where I throw you a curveball because I honestly thought that I would continue on with that topic for at least another week this week. But I've actually decided to postpone that idea and come back to it at a later date because there are a couple special guests I want to talk to concerning that topic. So we're going to postpone it until we can get them on the show. So today, we're going to start the book of James, or at least get kind of an introduction to it. But first, I want to go back to what I was just talking about when we started the show. Um, And it's a topic that I talked about last week, because lately, I seem to be developing a super sensitivity towards it. That is the topic of social media and smartphones. And it's not that I'm falling into the camp of, oh, technology is completely evil, which, which, obviously I use them as tools to help get the word out about the various things I do from this show to our family YouTube channel to my music. I actually love technology. We even use it uh, to share the news and events and sermons at our church. I love devices. I love tech. I actually enjoy social media. It's just that lately I'm finding that I'm hypersensitive to my overuse of my mobile device. And ever since I started purposefully putting it down and looking around at the world around me, I've noticed that I'm the only one looking around. Everyone else in the room with me, wherever I am, is usually face plunged into their phone. There are some in the younger generation that listen to this that can't relate because this culture of technology, social media, and cell phones have has always been a fixture of their lives. But do the rest of you remember a time when you didn't know what your friends and family were doing every second of the day? You didn't know what they were eating, nor were you socially obligated to do so. Remember a time when you were able to sit in a chair in a waiting room and just patiently sit there and wait? Or maybe even have a conversation with the stranger next to you? Remember when you could live your life without feeling like you were missing something if you didn't keep checking your phone over and over again? Now, don't get me wrong. There are some pretty awesome things that social media and its easy access provide. I'm a guy who has lived my life in different parts of the country. And as a result, I have family and friends who are spread all over the place, from New England to Tennessee to Missouri, Arkansas, Texas, and California, and even more. Being able to pick up my phone and see pictures of a friend's backyard barbecue is a nice way to still connect with them, even though a thousand or more miles keeps us apart. And I'm not the only one, as 93% of adults on Facebook use it to connect with family members, 91% use it to connect with current friends, and 87% use it to connect with friends from the past. 
It's just that social media also provides a platform to say or do things that we normally wouldn't say or do in our actual up-close and in-person interactions. A fairly recent survey showed that 31% of teens who use social media have fought with a friend because of something that happened online. A 2016 study found that overuse of social media as an adolescent may decrease success in relationships later in life as online communication hinders the development of conflict management skills and awareness of interpersonal cues. One study found that the more Facebook friends a person has, the more stressful Facebook is to use. Researchers have found that active Twitter use leads to greater amounts of Twitter-related conflict among romantic partners, which in turn leads to infidelity, breakup, and divorce. It affects education as well. 31% of teens say that social media during homework reduces the quality of their work. Students who used social media had an average GPA of 3.06, while non-users had an average GPA of 3.82. Students who used social media while studying scored 20% lower on tests. One study found that in schools which introduced a ban on cell phones, student performance improved 6.41%. Another found that grades began a steady decline after middle school and high school students reached 30 minutes of daily screen time. After four hours, average GPAs dropped one full grade. And social media can also consume valuable time during the day. Check this out. The average person, the average everyday person, spends 106 minutes just on Facebook alone every day. A survey of internet users aged 16 to 64 found that the average daily time spent on social media is 1.72 hours, which also only accounts for 28% of total time spent online. Which got me wondering, people spend that much time online. Oh my goodness, if if all of that social media is is in over an hour and a half, and that only accounts for 28% of the total time spent online, guys, we are spending a ton of time online. 36% of people surveyed listed social media as their biggest waste of time above fantasy football, watching TV, and shopping. Here's an interesting fact. When alerted to new social media activity, such as a new tweet or Facebook message or notification, users take 20 to 25 minutes on average to return to the original task they were doing before they got the notification. 20 to 25 minutes. In 30% of those cases, it took two hours to fully return attention to the original task Uh, that they were doing when they got that notification. The use of social media is also correlated with personality and brain disorders. A University of Pittsburgh study found that social media use was, quote, significantly associated with increased depression amongst adults uh, ages 19 to 32. Another study found that addictive social media use reflected increased narcissistic personality traits. Researchers have found that Interruptions due to phone notifications can cause inattention and hyperactivity in the general population. 
A UK government study found that 41% of children who spend over three hours on social media on a normal school day reportedly suffered from mental health difficulties compared with 21% who spent no time on those sites. Okay, I think you guys get the idea. We can go on and on, but all of these things are the result of going too far with it, like anything in our lives when things are not balanced. So why are we so addicted to our phones and social media? It's actually quite simple. It's like a drug. It releases dopamine in our brains. A study was done in the 1950s that demonstrated something called the theory of the variable schedule of rewards. Let me explain this. They observed that lab mice responded most voraciously to random rewards. When mice pressed a lever, they sometimes got a small treat. Other times when they pressed the lever, they got a large treat, and other times nothing at all. It was at random. Unlike other mice that received the same treat every time they pressed the lever, the mice that received variable rewards press the lever more often and compulsively. Kind of reminds me of an addiction to slot machines. You never know what you're gonna get, so you keep pressing it, you keep gambling. Similar to how mice behave when expecting to receive treats or that slot machine, we as a society eagerly keep checking our phones at the slightest ring or buzz because the dopamine trigger in our brains compels us to answer. The everyday mundane phone messages that we receive frequently throughout the day are akin to the mice's small treats. The big treats are the messages that give us pleasure. A, a message from a friend, a text message, a, a phone call from a loved one, or that funny cat video that we just have to watch. <laughs> it's the big treat that is addictive to us. And since we don't know when that big treat is coming, we keep pressing the lever compulsively and as often as the ringtone or notification calls us. We are compelled to look at the screen and answer regardless of where we are or who we're with or how rude it might even be. The thing about all of these facts are that they are not exclusive to just a secular carnal world. Christians are just as guilty of this as well, and we need to draw a line in the sand and use safeguards to not cross it. It's like any addiction. Addiction eventually changes how you behave. If someone becomes addictive, or I'm sorry, if someone becomes addicted to alcohol and gets drunk, while they're drunk, they say and do things that they wouldn't necessarily do if they were in their right mind. Social media and the devices that we use to access it if not handled responsibly, can do the same exact thing. As Christians, what precautions then do we need to take and what do we need to be aware of about ourselves when it comes to social media? We're gonna talk about that right after this message from our friend Todd Nettleton over at Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Don't go away and jump on Facebook just yet. We'll be right back right after this. Like the show? Buy a shirt. Visit the Edge Podcast Store at www.theedgepodcast.com. This is The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. Hi, I'm Todd Nettleton, and this is the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. In communist Romania, every prison was assigned a doctor who would be present during torture sessions. Their job was to keep victims alive while they were inflicted with unimaginable pain. But a Christian doctor had a different plan in mind as she worked in the prison 
smuggling in medicine to alleviate suffering and advocating for the helpless prisoners. Dr. Margarita Pescaru risked everything, but eventually she won the favor of prison officials and they stopped the torture of the innocents. Like Dr. Margarita Pescaru, may we heed Jesus' call not only to stand up under persecution, but also to stand up for others who are being persecuted. I will not let my brothers and sisters suffer in silence, nor will I let them suffer alone. To join me in prayer for persecuted Christians, go to vomradio.net. This is the place where awesome lives. Turn that up! The AIDS Podcast with Scott Logan. Welcome back to the show. We've been talking about what happens when we fall into overusing mobile devices and social media. And I do want to clarify that I'm not trying to completely demonize the whole thing. I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The idea of social media is pretty cool. I'm pretty sure that if the Apostle Paul could have looked through a time portal of today, he would have thought, oh man, a way to preach the gospel to 10 million people at the same time? I have got to get me one of these! What's important is that, like with everything we do in life, we do it as glorifying to God. That means that there are certain precautions that we take to do so. We can't fall into the trap of not including God in our use of social media. We can't treat our online interactions with people any differently than our personal face-to-face interactions. So often we become something different online because we feel like we can hide behind our computer or phone. But we can't. We need the yield of the Holy Spirit guiding our steps and our words in every aspect of our social life. One of the things about social media that can be kind of a snare for some people is that it is a platform that allows real-time reaction and very raw emotion. And because of that, people will many times react to differing opinions and views with very ungracious words that in no way represent the mercy and love of Jesus. It wasn't that long ago that we endured one of the most polarizing elections in our country's history. And I don't use this show to make political views. That's not what this is about. It's just that during that time, and really ever since, I've seen some of the ugliest sides of people's humanity in the way that they take a stance and put down people with differing views. And the majority of that that I've seen on my own Facebook timeline uh, was found in the posts of brothers and sisters in Christ, people I've really respected. So many of them fell into the trap of posting untruths online as well, false news stories and things like that. And the majority of it that I saw didn't have anything to do with Jesus, though many used his name in their arguments. It so often was to promote one's views over the other in a chase for superiority and the need to win. When we allow ourselves to do that online or any social forum, we are only placing the spotlight on our flesh and its carnal desires. Earlier, I used the term real-time reaction. Our sin nature craves quick gratification. It seeks outlets for self-promoting emotional outbursts where our complaints and anger and self-righteousness can be noticed and even exalted by others. 
How validating for your flesh if you can bury someone else's opinion publicly and get some likes and retweets for it. I would say that the majority of social media users in the world let their sin nature dictate what they say and do. But as Christians, we know that God isn't pleased with us when we let our flesh dictate our actions. Romans chapter 8, verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Every time we post anything on social media, we need to do the seasoning test. What I mean by that is that we need to stop and ask the Lord if what we're posting is seasoned with grace and mercy. Is it edifying? Is it actually based in truth? Does it represent who we are as slaves of Christ? Does it reflect a spiritual transformation or does it just indulge our need to argue and be right? Even if someone sits on the opposite side of the world from your belief system, or even if they are the ones attacking you first, is what you are saying blessing your enemies? Even if what you're saying is right, your heart can totally be in the wrong place. We need to make sure that what we say is glorifying to God and lovingly pointing people to Jesus and that it's representing our Christianity well. Now, that's just how we behave on social media. What about the constant addiction to looking at it? What about our constant struggle to put down our phones because our brains are looking for that dopamine release? In an already busy on-the-go life, how does prayer and Bible reading fit in with 106 minutes of scrolling through blogs and Facebook stalking? 1.72 hours of social media. We need to remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading as to how much time to spend on social media. And here's where so much of our culture would huff and puff at me for saying this, but maybe the Holy Spirit would even tell us to get off social media completely if it's an addiction affecting our Christian lives. I know that there are people that would say, oh, come on, Scott, be realistic. It's 2017 and you can't live without it. I understand, but my point is that just because we as the human race have made it a modern social necessity that without it you'll fall behind, doesn't mean any less that if it comes before your relationship with God in the way you spend your time, it needs to be cut out. I mean, you wouldn't look at an alcoholic and say, oh, come on, he needs to have at least a little bit of alcohol. Or you wouldn't look at someone with a porn addiction and say, oh, come on, he needs to have at least a swimsuit issue. That would be silly, right? Because I'm pretty sure that most recovering addicts to anything will tell you that it took full removal of that vice to be able to get over it. And most of them have to stay away from it because they have that proclivity towards that one thing to let it destroy their lives. We are called by God to prioritize our time in the word and in prayer. Social media and phones, if not handled responsibly, can pull us away from far more important things, including being present with family and friends and paying attention to them. The truth is that what we behold is what we worship. What we spend our time beholding shapes our hearts and molds us 
into the people we are. I'm going to botch this guy's name up bad, but forgive me. Douglas Gruthuis, maybe Grutus is his name, but but Douglas Gruthuis is a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. He was a campus pastor for 12 years and an associate professor of philosophy of religion and ethics at Denver Seminary. And he has said some pretty cool things concerning this topic. He said this, one way we become like what we behold shows up relationally. He said, when you begin to become shallow in your interactions with people, you can become habituated to that. He said, the way we interact online becomes the norm for how we interact offline. Facebook and Twitter communications are pretty short, clipped, and very rapid. And that is not a way to have a good conversation with someone. Moreover, a good conversation involves listening and timing, and that is pretty much taken away with internet communications because you are not there with a person. So someone could send you a message and you could ignore it, or someone could send you a message and you uh, get to it two hours later. But if you are in real time, in a real place, with real bodies and a real voice, that is a very different dynamic. He said, you shouldn't treat another person the way you would interact with Twitter. It's a very smart man. So do me a favor. Join me, guys, in controlling the amount of time we spend on our phones and in how we behave on social media. Let's do the seasoning test to everything we say before just impulse posting, heated opinions, unloving words, and false news stories. Let's not let our phones dictate our actions or by the amount of time we spend on them become what we worship. Like everything, let's glorify God on social media and use it to spread hope to a dying world. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, it's time to finally start our new expositional study in the book of James. I've been waiting for this, and I'm excited to start another book with you guys. Who was James anyway? Don't go away. We'll talk about it when we come back. Where truth and entertainment are BFFs. The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan is a proud partner of JesusFreakHideout.com. JesusFreakHideout.com is one of the world's largest Christian music online resources, featuring music news, videos, album release dates, album reviews, artist interviews, devotionals, and a lot more. The goal is simple, to bring the latest and greatest in Christian music to the internet masses and beyond. For more information, visit www.jesusfreakhideout.com. You're listening to the home for Bible geeks everywhere. This is the Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. I like reading the Bible. I was reading the Bible. Found out, uh, found out Jesus had a little brother. Anybody know his name? James. When I read that, I was like, how much pressure was that? <laughs> Jesus, your big brother? How many times do you have to hear, why come you can't be more like Jesus, James? Because <laughs> you know, everybody probably thought that James could do the same thing Jesus could do, but he couldn't. He was just James. He wasn't James Christ. <laughs> Remember the wedding banquet? Jesus turned water into wine. Everybody was amazed, but they don't tell you about the next banquet. Jesus left early. They started running out of wine. Everybody looked at James. 
He's like, man, last time this happened, your brother made some wine, dude. You, you just gonna stand there with your sandals on? You're not gonna... Can you make some Kool-Aid or something, man? You're not gonna do anything? And you know James had problems, just like any other kid had problems. He would try to follow his big brother around. So everywhere Jesus went, James followed him. That's what little brothers do. So if Jesus went there, so did James. I bet one time, James almost drowned. <laughs> oh, you just got that joke just now, didn't you? Jesus walked on water and James tried to just walk That is the stand-up comedy of Christian comedian Michael Jr. If you want to watch that whole clip on YouTube, it's pretty easy to find and quite hilarious. So we are getting ready to embark on another long expositional journey together. This time we're starting the book of James and we're going to do exactly what we did with Ephesians last season on the edge. And that's take our time and pick it apart so that we can learn what the Holy Spirit wants us to know and we can be hashtag Bible geeks. Today, we're just going to briefly do an introductory look and then next week dive into a deeper study. Now, there has been some debate in the theological world throughout history as to which James wrote this book. John Calvin and others suggested that the author was the Apostle James, son of Alphaeus. Jesus had two apostles named James, James the son of Zebedee and James the son of Alphaeus. But it is unlikely that either of these wrote the letter. According to the book of Acts, James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred about 44 AD, which would come up short uh, from when the letter, uh, James's letter, was actually written. That would be very early for him uh, to have been the writer. The other apostle, James, the son of Alphaeus, who actually John Calvin suggested was the author, uh, is not prominent in the scriptural record, and very little is known about him other than he may have been, according to Mark chapter 2, verse 14, the brother of Matthew. Martin Luther denied it was the work of an apostle and termed it an epistle of straw as compared to some other books in the New Testament, partly because of the conflict he thought it raised with Paul on the doctrine of justification. Now, the thing we need to realize is that they don't conflict with each other. They're actually in harmony with each other and complete a whole concept together. Some people have said, well, James is in conflict with Paul. That's not true. To Paul, the question was, how is salvation received? In the book of Romans, Paul was asking and answering that question, how is salvation received? And Paul's answer was always by faith alone. But to James, the question is, how is salvation verified? And his answer always is by works alone. So that's really the difference. They're kind of talking about two different things. One is how is salvation received? The other is how is salvation verified? So these actually work together. Uh, salvation is received by faith and it's verified by works. So there's no conflict there, just perfect harmony. Now, back to who the author is. The more accepted belief across theological circles is that most evidence shows that the author was James, the stepbrother of Jesus. 
Now, the book of James is a general epistle. Uh, James wrote it approximately in 48 or 49 AD. Uh, It was more than likely the first New Testament book or letter to be written. James wrote this book to Jewish Christians who were dispersed outside of Palestine due to persecution, and he was writing this letter to encourage them to endure and live bold and meaningful Christian lives. Uh, This is a book about practical Christian living that reflects a genuine faith in Christ that transforms our lives. Some have called this epistle the New Testament answer to the book of Proverbs. But let's talk about James just for a second in closing here. James was Jesus's little brother. He shared the same mom, Mary, and his dad, Joseph, was Jesus's stepdad, because obviously we know who Jesus's real father is. Now, the story of his conversion, as someone like myself who subscribes to a more Calvinistic theological view, I believe the amount of time it took for James to actually call Jesus Lord goes to prove a point. It's definitely a shining example of how, in our depravity, we can't know Jesus is Lord until he has chosen to reveal himself to us. You see, James didn't grow up thinking of his brother as a Messiah. In John uh, chapter 7, verse 5, in speaking of Jesus' brothers, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. I mean, he grew up in the same house with the same parents, watching the Savior of the world grow up and live a perfect life right in front of him. And he didn't believe that Jesus was Lord. Obviously, he knew the story of Jesus's birth, um, but that didn't happen. James didn't come to a conversion until after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection when Jesus chose to reveal himself to James. Unfortunately, there isn't really a large written account of that event, and I wish that there was because I would have loved to be the fly on the wall when James finally saw his big brother in a new light. The only scripture we have of this event is when Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. Paul said, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one abnormally born, uh, he also appeared to me. So that's it. That's all we really get about James' conversion moment. Uh, But what a transformation it was. He went from the brother who didn't believe in Jesus to the one who identifies himself as a slave of Christ in verse 1. That's a long way to come from being the little brother who may have even envied Jesus growing up because of Christ's perfection. We're going to talk more about James next week and start our study in James chapter 1. But that's going to do it for this week. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. If you want more information about The Edge, make sure to go to the website, theedgepodcast.com. All my social links are at the top right corner of the homepage. But remember, not to abuse it when it comes to social media this week. Next week, we're getting into James chapter 1. But until then, 
make sure to live on the edge. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. Visit the website, www.theedgepodcast.com for a complete list of episodes, blogs, merchandise, and more. And above all else, live on the edge.